Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 20, The End of Fernando de Soto. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this episode on May 3rd, 2021, in Austin, Texas. Once again, music for the writing of this episode was supplied by WWOZ in New Orleans and the Guardians of the Groove. Last time, we followed Hernando de Soto's expedition on a circuitous route through the American Southeast during 1540, ending with a confrontation between Soto and Tascaloosa, the great chief of the Atahachi, in the Battle of Mabila. That battle was by far the bloodiest involving Europeans on American soil up to that point, and probably for a long time thereafter. Of course, we don't know whether Indians had fought bigger battles among themselves, but generalizing here, intertribal Indian warfare was not known to have piled up huge body counts. Mabila resulted in the deaths of many hundreds of Indians at least, perhaps a couple of thousand. By comparison, total Indian casualties during King Philip's War from 1675 to 1678 reckoned by some to be the bloodiest war in American history in proportionate terms, were perhaps 3,000 dead and wounded. During the so-called Indian Wars in the American West between 1850 and 1890, there were roughly 15,000 Indian casualties all told, of which only a subset, maybe half that number, were deaths. So if Indian deaths on one day in October 1540 range from the high hundreds to 2,000 or more, Mabila was a monster of a battle by the standards of the time and place. For the Spanish, the notional victory was Pyrrhic. In addition to 40 or so dead and 250 wounded, the chronicler Biedma reported a total of 760 arrow wounds. The Spanish had lost most of their baggage when Tascaloosa persuaded the Entrada's Indian porters to switch sides. The expedition, now licking its wounds somewhere between Mobile and Selma, but not far from the Gulf Coast in November 1540, was at a turning point. Should they go to the Gulf and look for a lift home, find a place to settle down, or keep up the search for the next rich Indian civilization? Regardless, winter was coming. We shall return to that question after we briefly digress to talk about the matter of Pyrrhic victories, a term most of you have heard but maybe don't know the origin of. I didn't. Per the ever-useful Wikipedia, a Pyrrhic victory is a victory that inflicts such a devastating toll on the victor that it is tantamount to defeat. All right, I knew that. But the phrase originates from a quote, from the Greek king Pyrrhus of Epirus, whose triumph against the Romans in the Battle of Asculum in 279 destroyed much of his forces. But the tactical victory forced the end of his campaign. Why? Because the Romans were in a position to replace their losses, but the Greeks could not replace theirs. Well, so it was with Soto's Entrada after Mabila. At the beginning of 1540, before the expedition had left the Tallahassee area, Soto was still in contact with his fleet. He dispatched Captain Francisco Maldonado to go get more supplies and to patrol the Gulf Coast while the Entrada explored the interior. 
The question now was, where was Maldonado and his ships? The chroniclers unfortunately do not agree. Elvis says that Indians who'd been along the coast reported up the interpretation chain to Juan Ortiz, that Spanish ships were anchored only six days' march to the south, but that Soto ordered Ortiz to keep mum because he was worried that his men would desert and return to Cuba. Biedma says that Soto did mention his ships to his men, but refused to let anyone go to the coast and make contact because the army was so low on provisions, and he determined that the highest priority needed to be finding food in a place to winter. Biedma's rationale does not make much sense to David Ewing Duncan, nor me. Surely the army would have been better prepared to find a place to winter if it replenished its stores with such supplies, including presumably food, as the fleet could spare. Unfortunately for Soto nerds, Ron Hell, the obvious tiebreaker among the eyewitness chroniclers and Soto's personal secretary and therefore most privy to his thinking, doesn't mention the episode. The omission is so curious that I am driven to Elvis's account that Soto hushed up news of the ships because he was worried about dissent in the ranks after the disaster at Mabila. Regardless, in mid-November 1540, Soto took the Entrada north instead of Tor Maldonado's ships. Duncan's description is evocative as usual. Moving slowly in the cold and damp, with heavy flakes of wet snow falling on black, sodden leaves, the once grand army of Hernando de Soto now looked more battered, ragtag, and weary than ever. A few men still wore European clothes, rapidly wearing out, since virtually every spare shirt, boot, and legging had been lost in the fire at Mabila. Most of the men now dressed themselves in native blankets and scraps of clothing. These included, says Rangel, a nobleman named Don Antonio Osario, brother of the Lord Marquis of Astorgia, having an annual income of 2,000 ducats back in Spain, he was now reduced to wearing a doublet of blankets of that land, torn on the sides, his flesh exposed without a hat, bareheaded, barefooted, without hose or shoes, a shield at his back, a sword without a scabbard. Soto took the army northwest, probably because surviving Indians in the region told the Ortiz translation chain there were larger Mississippian civilizations with food surpluses in that direction. For several weeks, the Entrada crossed rivers and found nothing but small villages with relatively little extra food. On December 17th, the army reached what is probably the upper Tom Bigby River in eastern Mississippi, and now they were in the territory of the Chickasa, an accomplished agricultural tribe with substantial food. Anthropologists today believe that when Soto arrived, the Chicasa were in the midst of a slow decline from a high Mississippian culture. The Chicasa did not immediately approach the Spanish, although no doubt they kept them under surveillance. At some point shortly after New Year's Day, 1541, a Chicasa chief and several of his deputies arrived at Soto's camp, bringing gifts of rabbits and blankets. The next few weeks, they visited often, and Soto loaned the chief a small horse so he could more easily come and go. Soto invited some of the senior Chikasa for delicious pork, which Duncan calls the first known pork barbecue in Mississippi. Perhaps I've spent too much time in Texas, 
but I was frankly unaware that Mississippi barbecue was a thing. No doubt they think it's a thing, but a quick survey of internet barbecue listicles doesn't turn up Mississippi at all. Just saying. In any case, the Chicasa were doing their best to lull the Spanish into complacency. In early March 1541, 450 years and one day before the birth of my own number one son, if we forget about the change in the calendar since then, the Chikasa chief, whose name is lost to history, sprung his trap. At 2 a.m. in the morning, dressed in their feathers and painted for war, 300 Chikasa snuck into the Spanish camp with little jars that contained a particular smoldering herb which could burst into flame if shaken. Back to Duncan's reduction of the chroniclers. Barely breathing and clutching earthen containers burning with the sweet scent of the smoldering herb, they approached the first huts of the sprawling camp. There they listened for a moment to the silence of men sleeping, horses grunting, and the first insects and birds of spring chattering and whistling. Then a signal was given and the assault began with the lead Indians touching the straw roofs of the nearest huts with the smoldering ropes and the Chikasa shouting battle cries and beating their drums. Caught utterly by surprise, most Spaniards were driven out of the houses without having time to arm themselves. And as they rose, maddened by the noise and blinded by the smoke and flame of the fire, they did not know where they were going, nor did they succeed in getting their arms or in putting saddle on the horse, nor did they see the Indians who were shooting at them. Many of the horses were burned in their stables, and those which could break their halters freed themselves. The confusion and rout were of such a nature that each one fled wherever it seemed safest, without anyone resisting the Indians. Only Soto succeeded in grabbing a lance and throwing a saddle on his horse, though he did not cinch it tight enough and fell off his mount as he rushed over to lance the nearest Indian. The force of the blow knocked him backward with a thud onto the ground. Yet he did manage to kill his target, the only Chikasa who died that night. Then the Spanish got lucky. A bunch of horses bolted from the flames, and the Indians mistook them for a cavalry charge and scattered. The Indians broke off their attack and vanished, which saved the Entrada from ultimate destruction. Per Elvis, the town was consumed with fire. Eleven Spaniards, 57 irreplaceable horses, and more than 400 of the 500 pigs died in the fire. If perchance anyone still had any clothing left from the fire at Mabila, says Elvis, it was now all burned up in that place, and many were naked as they had no time to snatch their jerkins. Soto rallied his army, and they spent the next few days tending their wounds and rebuilding their armaments. Taking a page from Narvaez, they built a forge fed by deer-hide bellows to rebuild their edged weapons and tools. They recovered the tips of lances and javelins and cut new handles from trees in the area. And they prepared for the next attack, which did not come until a week later. This time Soto was ready, and his cavalry, however battered, caught the Chikasa on an open plain and killed many of them. Now down to 450 Spanish and a couple of hundred Indian slaves to schlep stuff, 
The Army took a full two months in north-central Mississippi to recover before resuming the march west. Indians harassed them all along the way, at one point building a barricade across the main trail and deploying 300 warriors to defend it. So to assume that the barricade was to defend something important and roused his men to attack it instead of just going around. Another 15 dead Spaniards later, Soto learned that the barricade was defending nothing. On the morning of May 8, 1541, which would be 480 years ago this coming Sunday, the Entrada broke out of the woods on a low bluff perhaps 30 miles south of Memphis. In the valley below, the Spanish spotted a substantial village surrounded by fields of maize. It would not have been ready to eat or even knee-high, it not yet being the 4th of July. But big fields almost always meant big food surpluses, and the Spanish were by this time starving. They could also see, in Duncan's words, a great gray ribbon of muddy water stretching nearly a mile wide. Soto and his men had, supposedly discovered the Mississippi River. We shall return to Soto and the American imagination at the end of this episode. Suffice it to say that at that moment, 450 years ago, Soto and his men had little to no appreciation for the geographical significance of the river. They cared a lot more about the corn and considered the Great River itself an obstacle to be crossed rather than an opportunity. And never mind that other Europeans had seen the river first, including especially the Narvaez expedition's fleet of rafts, which encountered the Mississippi at its mouth. The volume of the river pouring into the gulf was so immense that the raftsmen had been able to drink fresh water right over the side a mile offshore. In any case, we've seen this moment before, back at the very beginning of the History of the Americans podcast. Shortly after the Entrada encamped on the eastern bank, there appeared an armada of Mississippian warships dispatched by a large kingdom called Akio on the western bank. The chroniclers claim the fleet was as big as 200 vessels deployed in battle formation. Duncan. Elvis describes them as very large and well-built, looking like a beautiful fleet of galleys with thousands of warriors painted with red ochre and having great plumes of white and many-colored feathers on each side of the canoes and holding shields in their hand with which they covered the paddlers. He adds that the canoe in which the chief came had an awning spread in the stern and he was seated under the canopy. Other notables also sat under colorful awnings, surrounded by men bearing longbows, arrows, and war clubs. At first, the chief sounded as if he wanted peace with the Spaniards, though as usual, this was a pretense for sending envoys to size up Soto and his army. Soon after, as the Spaniards built their camp, feasted on looted maize, and began to build several rafts to make their crossing, Akio's highly disciplined ranks tried to land and stage an attack which they attempted more than once. Soto's crossbowmen were ready each time, however, with volleys of arrows that sent the beautiful ships back out to the river at a safe distance. For the entire month Soto spent constructing rafts and resting his men, the fleet appeared nearly every day to challenge the Spaniards should they try to cross. But as the army regained its strength, these daily visits by the Indian armada grew less fearsome. As the invaders began to realize 
that a culture capable of building such impressive vessels and maintaining them in a river with such discipline was as advanced as any they had seen in La Florida. These Mississippian canoes inspired Soto's men with fresh hope that perhaps after all they had suffered, the golden empire Soto had been promising might finally exist across this great river. By June 17, 1541, the rafts were finished. Not wanting to confront the Indian Armada, which usually arrived in the afternoon, the Spaniards organized their crossing for 3 a.m. The strong current would take the raft some distance downstream as they crossed, and then they would have to be paddled back to the encampment on the eastern bank. By 7.30 in the morning, the entire army and its horses, pigs, and remaining baggage was across into Arkansas. It snuck around the Indians, which is no mean feat in and of itself, and not a man, horse, or a single little piglet was lost. Nor did they have to fight the Akio. Off they marched into Arkansas. We saw this moment before in our second episode, The Americans Before Columbus, Part 2. Charles Mann, who wrote the great book 1491, describes the depopulation that happened after Soto passed. Here's what I said back in January with a few updates. After Soto left the area, it was more than a century before Europeans visited this part of the Mississippi Valley again, this time the Frenchman La Salle. La Salle passed through the area where Soto had found Indian settlements, one after the other. It was deserted. The French didn't see an Indian village for 200 miles. About 50 settlements existed in this strip of the Mississippi when Soto showed up, according to Anne Romanofsky, an archaeologist at the University of New Mexico. By La Salle's time, the number had shrunk to perhaps 10, some probably inhabited by recent immigrants. Soto had a privileged glimpse of an Indian world. The window opened and slammed shut. When the French came in and the record opened up again, it was a transformed reality. A civilization crumbled. The question is, how did this happen? The leading hypothesis, according to Mann, is that Soto's pigs spread disease lethal to heretofore unexposed New World humans. Swine can transmit the Eastern Hemisphere diseases of anthrax, brucellosis, leptospirosis, trichinosis, and tuberculosis. They can infect New World deer and turkeys, which can then infect humans. Only a few of Soto's pigs would have had to wander off to contaminate the forest and its game animals. This probably happened repeatedly and explains a meaningful part of the massive decline of Indian societies throughout the South and Southeast after the passage of Soto's army. Violent as it was, the most enduring consequence of the Soto Entrada was entirely unintended. From June 1541 to May 1542, the weakening Soto expedition would rack around Arkansas looking still for a great golden Indian civilization. The historical record thins considerably, perhaps because the Entrada itself diminishes, and judging from the route historians have reconstructed, it was to a great degree just flailing around. We'll hit a couple of the high points. There weren't many during the Arkansas phase. And then hurry along to the grand finale. During the summer and fall of 1541, Soto sent various reconnaissance missions out to expand the reach of his exploration. Biedma suggests that he sent one troop off to look for the Pacific Ocean, 
having no idea how wide North America was at this point. Ludicrous as this may seem, to those of us who have been to the natural state, consider pulling up Google Maps and zooming out from Arkansas. That sum of the expedition was on a longitude that corresponds with a point quite some distance off the west coast of Nicaragua, smack dab in the Pacific. Soto knew his whereabouts on the planet, even if he had no idea where he was. In October, Soto's expedition encountered a tough tribe called the Tula. Here's Duncan's summary of the chroniclers. According to the chroniclers, the Tula represented a dramatic change from the Mississippians of the Arkansas River Valley. Living near modern Ozark, or perhaps further south, near Bluffton, in the Oachita National Forest, they were hunter-gatherers first and agriculturalists second, supplementing the game they hunted with small plots of maize and vegetables. Probably ancestors of the Caddo Indians, they not only fought different from the Mississippians, they also lived in smaller and cruder villages and spoke a language so different that the Mississippian Kayas had trouble finding interpreters who understood the Tula. In part, said the chief of the Kayas, this was because his forebears had always been at war with the lords of that province, and they had no converse. The people of Tula also had a strange custom of greeting the Spaniards by crying profusely, something later explorers remark on when they visit the Cado. Devoted and attentive listeners will remember that 400 miles to the south and now 13 years before, somewhere along the coast of Texas, Cabeza de Vaca and his fellow survivors had encountered the same custom. After spending the warm months of 1541 marching all over Arkansas, even Soto was getting discouraged. Late that year, he pointed his army back to the east, set up winter camp in the vicinity of modern Redfield, which sits on the Arkansas River some miles south of Little Rock. The Little Ice Age had not waned, and the winter was very difficult. Juan Ortiz, he who had survived so much for so long, became sick and died. Elvis says that Soto felt his death deeply, not only because he admired Ortiz, but because he had come to rely on him to lead a chain of translators now as many as 14 links long. Soto appointed a young Indian captured almost two years before in South Carolina. The lad had learned some Spanish. But as a practical matter, Soto had lost his comms and intelligence officer. When the snows melted in early March 1542, Soto led the army southeast toward the Mississippi, making camp on the western bank in southeastern Arkansas. He hoped, but did not know, that the Great River led to the Gulf of Mexico, and from there he could make it to Cuba. Soto still talked a game about rebuilding in Cuba and restarting the search for the next Tenochtitlan. But when a scouting party sent south reported that it had seen no ocean after a hundred miles of bushwhacking, Soto fell ill and took to his bed with a fever. He would not recover. As tensions with local Indians rose, Soto tried bluffing the local chief, a powerful lord named Quigqualtam, by demanding his submission. Quigqualtam proposed the reverse, essentially. Soto got sicker and sicker, appointed his old friend Luis de Moscoso as his successor in command, 
and died on May 21st, 1542. Not wanting the Indians to learn that the legendary Soto had died, Moscoso and a small band of his friends weighed Soto's body down with blankets filled with sand and sank it in the Mississippi. Is there any special arrangement you would like for the body? There's only an empty shell now. Please treat it as such. Given his physical strength, courage, warrior ethic, sense of honor, and predilection to conquest, it's not impossible for me, at least, to believe that Soto was actually a Klingon. Soto being dead, David Ewing Duncan's accessible biography, on which I have much relied, also now comes to the end. We still have the more turgid prose of the final report of the United States DeSoto Expedition Commission, which you will recall was established by FDR during the New Deal to study the Soto and Trotta and issue a report on same, along with various amusing recommendations. Moscoso thought it time to get back to civilization, which Soto no doubt knew when he appointed Moscoso as his successor. According to the final report, Moscoso called a council of the remaining senior leaders to consider how best to do this. Since the Mississippi was of indeterminate length and food supplies were uncertain, the group decided to march west to Mexico, aiming for Penuco, still, as in Cabeza de Vaca's time, the northernmost outpost of the Spanish Empire along the Gulf Coast of Mexico. Moscoso was a cautious man, however so he had the opinion of each of the senior leaders recorded in writing and signed. These expeditions were, after all, business ventures, and then as now, disappointed investors often sued the leaders for decisions that only seem ill-advised after the fact. On January 5th, 1542, the failed Entrada left the Mississippi and headed west and south through Louisiana and into East Texas, where it worked its way southwest for several months. There is a lot of arcane debate about the precise route of the expedition in Texas, this being the sort of thing that has long fascinated the many historians of Texas, but we shall spare you the details, except to say that they may have gotten as far as the Brazos River, which flows from northwest of Waco down to the Gulf, somewhere south of Galveston. In any case, they began to figure out that the territory between central Texas and Mexico was inadequate to support more than 300 men and the remaining animals. Mounted scouting expeditions sent ahead confirmed that there was very little food for a long way. In early October, Governor Moscoso called his leaders together again, and after a somewhat more contentious debate, they decided to return to the Mississippi and build boats that could take them down the Great River to the Gulf and thence to Pinuco. The decision does invite the question, why not build boats on the upper Brazos and head to the Gulf that way? The chroniclers in the final report do not answer this question, but presumably the expeditionaries, dare we now call them refugees, did not actually know that the Texas rivers drained to the Gulf or did not believe they could find enough local food to feed them while they built the boats. So they marched back through northern Louisiana and settled on the Mississippi just as winter was setting in. Over the course of the winter and spring, taking into account delays from flooding and 
up-and-down relations with the local Indians, the men built several pinnaces, which are small boats that sails and perhaps oars to be rowed, and various supporting craft. On July 2nd, 1543, now more than four years after the landing at Tampa Bay and 13 months after Soto died, 322 Spaniards, roughly 100 of the remaining Indian porters, and 22 of the best horses embarked. The horses, straddling canoes, lashed side by side. It must have been quite a sight. The Spanish simply abandoned a couple of hundred other Indians, some of whom had come all the way from Florida, and they killed, butchered, and salted most of the remaining horses and pigs so they would have food for the journey. I, of course, wonder whether most of the pigs doesn't imply that some of the pigs were abandoned alive, free to reproduce, spread their eastern hemisphere germs, and evolve into the razorbacks of Arkansas. Over the next two weeks, this startling fleet worked its way down the Mississippi, harassed and even attacked by Indians all along the way, first by Quigqualtam's vassals, and then by various downstream tribes. An excerpt from the final report is amazing to visualize. A hundred canoes came toward them, each carrying from 60 to 70 Indians, and they sent messengers on a pretended mission of peace, but immediately on the return of the latter, raised hostile shouts and advanced as if for battle. Moscoso dispatched Captain Juan de Guzman in the canoes with 25 men in armor to drive them out of the way. But the Indians closed upon the Spaniards, upset their canoes, and 11 or 12 men were drowned. Friendly reminder, it's always risky to wear armor in a canoe. Encouraged by this success, the Indians now attacked the larger vessels and kept it up all the rest of that day. The Spaniards determined to continue on their course all night in hopes of distancing their assailants, but the latter left them no peace until the following noon when they reached the territory of another tribe. These latter took up the chase in 50 canoes and fought them all of one day and night, at one time getting near enough to take an Indian woman out of one of the Spanish vessels. The double canoes carrying the horses moved along so awkwardly and held the fleet back so much that when they fell behind, the Indians would attack them and the pinnaces would have to fall back on their behalf. So Muscusu determined to land, slaughter the beasts, and cure the meat to add to his provisions. Four or five horses were allowed to go at liberty. I'm sure you wonder, as I do, if those four or five horses included a stallion and a mare. Regardless, the fleet would have reached the site of the future New Orleans by roughly mid-July, and after more skirmishes on July 18th, reached the Gulf of Mexico. From there, the pilot Juan Inasco, blessedly one of the now 300 or so surviving Spanish, guided the fleet along the coast and sometimes across stretches of open water for close to two months. Amazingly for that time of year, there is no record of the pinnaces encountering a Gulf hurricane, and the survivors indeed reached Panuco safely on September 10th, 1543. So ended the Soto Entrada. Fundamentally, the expedition was an abject failure, both by the standards of the original royal mandate, which called for 
settlements, and three stone fortresses and such, and by Soto's own objectives that accomplished nothing lasting for the Spanish. Even Soto's discovery of the Mississippi, memorialized in the name of the bridge that carries Interstate 40 into Memphis, was just the re-identification of a river that had already been seen at its mouth by at least two previous Spanish expeditions. None of this, however, is to suggest that Soto was in fact an incompetent conquistador. He had proven that he was extremely capable in Central America and Peru, where he was also lucky in the geology. That there was no third great golden Indian civilization in North America was legitimately surprising to the Spanish, and perhaps just Soto's luck turned bad. Indeed, given what we have seen about the incredibly short lifespan of Spanish explorers in the Americas, the best evidence for Soto's competence is that fully half of Soto's original expedition survived four long and brutal years in La Florida before making it back to Spanish jurisdiction. Those 300 survivors almost all owed their lives to Soto's planning, his good judgment in the selection of subordinate officers, and his battlefield leadership for the first three years of the invasion. The appendices to the final report are replete with factoids, including distances covered and days spent in each state, according to the consensus route adopted by the Expedition Commission in the late 1930s. Some of that consensus has been overturned with more recent archaeology and other scholarship, but the DeSoto Expedition Commission numbers are still, well, close enough for government work. So here goes. DeSoto Entrada spent 1,570 days on its journey from Tampa Bay to Panuco, including 285 days in Florida, 61 days in Georgia, 21 days in South Carolina, 6 days in North Carolina, 27 days in Tennessee, 168 days in Alabama, 187 days in Mississippi, 103 days in Texas, and a whopping 443 days in Louisiana. Not counting mounted reconnaissance operations, the expedition spent approximately 255 days on the march, and on those days averaged a bit more than 10 miles a day. The balance of the 4,000 or so miles were traveled in the pinnaces, down the Mississippi and along the Gulf Coast. The Federal Commission also included no end of helpful suggestions for recognition and celebration of Soto. Some of these are curious to our modern sensibilities and would never be suggested today. That they were suggested 80 years ago, though, is its own marker of the changes in our feelings about the old colonizers in just three generations. I'll close by reading some of the better bits from the Expedition Commission's final report. The following recommendations are made by the Commission. I'll skip a few. If major celebrations are desired, other than that at Tampa, which is already provided for, we suggest the following as suitable occasions for them. May 1, 1940, the 400th anniversary of the date on which DeSoto crossed the savannah in the neighborhood of the present Augusta, Georgia, and met the famous Lady of Kofetacheki. This would be of interest to the people of Georgia and South Carolina. May 26, 1940, commemorating the passage of the Little Tennessee at the present site of Franklin, North Carolina. This would, of course, be of interest to the people of the state mentioned. 
It was the first discovery of any of the inland tributaries of the Mississippi by Europeans. June 4th and 5th, 1940, 400th anniversary of the date on which the Spaniards marched past the present site of Chattanooga, around the flank of Lookout Mountain. This would be of interest to Tennesseans. September 6, 1940, commemorating the day when they reached the site of Montgomery, Alabama, and October 18, 1940, 400th anniversary of the Great Battle at Mobila, an Indian town which, although many miles to the north of the present Mobile, has given its name to that city. These events would interest the people of Alabama. December 14, 1940, the 400th anniversary of the day when the Spaniards passed the sites of Columbus and Aberdeen, Mississippi, and reached the Tom Bigbee. And March 4, 1941, 400 years after the date on which the Great Battle occurred between the explorers and the Chickasaw. These events would particularly interest the people of Mississippi. Kind of goes on like this, including... May 21st, 1942, the 400th anniversary of DeSoto's death. His body was committed to the waters of the Mississippi River a few days after this event occurred. This would interest the states of Louisiana and Mississippi. If elaborate celebrations of any of these events are desired, the commission suggests, as of a special moment, the discovery of the inland course of the Mississippi and the dramatic death of its discoverer. It is recommended that the major celebrations be made occasions for renewing and strengthening our acknowledgement of the contributions of Spain and her colonies to American history and American culture, and that representatives of Spanish-speaking nations be accorded a suitable place therein. There's some diversity and inclusion way back in 1939. It has been suggested that an important highway be named after DeSoto, The explorations of the Spaniards under him represented wanderings in search of half-mythic provinces, which it was hoped might prove sufficiently wealthy to repay the efforts spent in conquering them, and do not as a whole fall in line with the essential highway systems of our country. The accomplishments of Hernando de Soto were sufficient, however, to justify the perpetuation of his name in one of our great arteries of communication, and it is recommended that the selection of such a highway be commended to the Bureau of Public Roads in cooperation with the highways departments. We recommend the issuance of commemorative stamps and medals and, if it is thought desirable, of special coins. We suggest finally, although this must be left largely to private initiative, that this quadricentennial should be made an occasion for the preparation of plays and cinema films dealing with some of the many romantic episodes in the life of Hernando de Soto and his companions. In closing, the de Soto expedition is of too much historical significance and forms a chapter in the story of Spain and America and in the story of all America, too important and too romantic for its 400th anniversary to be allowed to pass without due and widespread recognition. Respectfully submitted... John R. Swanton, he's the chairman of the commission, and a whole host of other people. That is New Deal government in action. Well then, that about does it. Thank you again for listening. Next week I may take the long-threatened week off. I will be in Ukraine co-teaching a course on entrepreneurship at the Business School of Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. 
So unless I get a sidebar episode in the can before I leave, you may not hear from me again until around May 20th. We shall see. In the meantime, please invite your history-loving friends to listen along. And if the spirit moves you, rate us five stars on Apple or your podcast app of choice. 